The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Our Old Testament reading this morning comes to us from Exodus chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went in to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. And he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. We'll go with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But Pharaoh said to them, the Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No. Go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all of the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, 
and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. God, we thank you for your word. Of your grace. Do you know what day it is today? Yes, it's November 20th, but it's also the church's New Year's Eve. Huh? It's the final Sunday before our new liturgical year begins. It's the end of Pentecost. It's the end of ordinary time. We at All Saints, we remember the church calendar because it serves in our worship. To mirror our life in Christ, our being a new creation in Jesus. It's the Sunday where we put a period at the end of the salvation story sentence. And then, guess what? Next week, we tell the story once again for another year, beginning with Advent. Happy New Year's Eve. What do we love about a new year? I love New Year's because they bring with them like new beginnings. Clean slatedness, out with the old and in with the new. Goodwill runs with old, outdated fashions, make room for new and now Christmas finds and gifts, right? Bad habits try to be broken and new habits promised. And spiritually, as I was talking to a friend this week, each year of our liturgical calendar for a follower of Jesus, honestly, can feel a little bit like purgatory. Purgatory in the Roman Catholic tradition. You, do you, some of you know this. I, I knew it growing up. It's that place, that Middle Earth place after death where the souls of sinners suffer through a period of penance and payment for their sins in order that their suffering might pay and pave the way for them to be received into heaven. We Protestants, we don't believe purgatory is biblical. It removes the need and the sufficiency of the cross of Jesus Christ. But we do believe in something slightly similar, what we'll call sanctification. The process of being made holy. The fundamental difference between purgatory and sanctification is the change agent. In purgatory, it's human will, it's human effort. 
In sanctification, it's God's will. It's God's effort. It's the Spirit of the Lord who lives in us that's going to be doing this work. Sanctification is a lifestyle of repentance where we put to death old ways of living independently of God, what we call in theological terms, mortification. And we turn to new ways of living in full dependence upon Jesus and the life that he offers. We call this vivification, easy for me to say, vivification. Where God uses throughout our year the combination of his word and his spirit. He uses time. He uses trials. He uses our sin. He uses our suffering. He uses gospel and grace, prayer and practice to transform us more and more and more into the image of Jesus. Where the self decreases and Christ increases. Sanctification, if you think in terms of creation is all about first decreating, demolishing the kingdom of self and creating in us a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. So think about the past year from Advent to now with me. Think about this past year, friends. Your life this past year, how has a faithful God worked in you to decreate, to put to death your old world order? How has he done that? And how has he transformed you? How has he exodused you, if I make that into a verb, into a new creation? One who is more like Jesus at the end of this year than you were at the beginning. Any thoughts? Has this transformation that's gone on been easy? (laughs) Far from it, I think we'd all say. Has it been pleasant? Not, Not every day. Has it been painful? Many days. Are you finished? Not even close. Has it been a humbling journey each day and learning what submitting every part of your life before God looks like? No doubt. But let me ask, has it been good? so good. The path of humility is so good. But what happens when there's no humility, no submission, no allowance for God's Spirit to work in us? A refusal to let the Lord once again be in charge. Well, actually, these two-step processes, mortification and vivification, really then only end in one. Mortification, only decreating, only death. Exodus has used the word heavy or hardness to describe the condition of Pharaoh's refusing heart. Pharaoh, in his hardness, says time and time and time again, I am the Lord. And in his refusal to humble himself before the Lord, we witness in Exodus 10 not humility but Pharaoh's humiliation. We're in the final two decreating steps of Pharaoh, a decreating steps of Egypt in their world, before the only thing that's left for Pharaoh and for the rest of Egypt to look at is going to be death itself. These plagues, friends, that we've gone through, they might be signaling the end to Pharaoh's story, but clearly not the end of God's people's story. 
Because in this undoing, in this decreation, in this mortification, a new creation is coming. A new creation is dawning. If you would humble yourself before the Lord. If you would let the sun set on yourself and on the path of yourself, you can behold the path toward a new creation which dawns in Christ. Let the sun set on the path of yourself and behold the new creation which dawns in the path of Jesus. This is the path of humility. And there's two steps on this path, a path refused by Pharaoh and often resisted by us. And it's this, Lord, first consume our darkness and then cover us in your light. First, consume our darkness. Let's look at the eighth plague. It's found in verses 1 to 20 to help us come to terms with the beginning of the path of humility. What is the darkness found in the plague of the locusts? It's the darkness of defiance. In verse 3, Moses is directed by God to ask Pharaoh this question. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Literally, the word to humble means to wreck or to be afflicted. How long will you refuse to be wrecked? God is showing Pharaoh and Egypt and the Hebrews and us the stubbornness of a sinful heart. How dark a heart can be in its unwillingness to surrender to the Lord, to give up, to give over control to Him. And the Lord, in verses 1 to 2, makes Pharaoh's hardness part of the people of God's story to be told generations after Moses how the Lord deals with the darkness of a hard heart. He says, nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Even the most arrogant and asinine man cannot stop the Lord's plan of salvation. But it can go one of two ways. Either you remain hardened like Pharaoh and be consumed by the Lord's heavy hand. Or you humble yourself and be softened and spared by the Lord's mercy. Pharaoh's heart remains in its original hardened form by the free will of Pharaoh. He's choosing this. And also by the sovereign will of God, he's choosing to do nothing about it. Pharaoh will eat his last morsel of power and independence, refusing to give to God what is God's. So God, in his fair justice, will eat away everything Pharaoh has left. Everything that Pharaoh believes is Pharaoh's will be eaten away. He calls for locusts, the ultimate consumers, to come and eat everything that the previous plagues have not yet destroyed. The fields are munched upon. The pantries in people's homes are also munched upon. Till there is nothing green, nothing consumable left. Famine and destitution covers Egypt. But it's not without warning. Pharaoh had an opportunity to humble himself over and over and over again as his authority is being questioned now even among those who are closest to him. Look in verse 7. His servants are saying, how long are you going to do this, Pharaoh? How long are you going to let this man torment us? Give him a bone. Let the guys go out and worship. Look around, Pharaoh. Egypt is in ruins. 
What are you thinking? And Pharaoh tries once again to do negotiation with the Lord, to try and retain some hold on power. Go, but who's going? Moses responds, Every, everyone's going. Every one of us and everything we have, we're going. And Pharaoh says, with what verse 2 promises as he mocks Moses, <laughs> it would have to be the Lord who is with you if I was to let all of this go. See how much power he's trying to hang on to? See the darkness of a life that says, my will be done. It will be consumed, God says, as the east wind blows a cloud of gazillions of grasshoppers, so numerous that they blocked the sun, verse 15 says. God is reversing. He's decreating what he made in Genesis as the vegetation, the plants, the fruit trees are erased. They're taken away. And Pharaoh, in the darkness of his power-hungry heart, tries again to use manipulation to get his way. In verse 16, as Pharaoh hears and sees the munching of the locusts and sees the green land turning brown, he hurries, the scripture says, he hurries with his play-acting repentance, turning not to the Lord, but to Moses and Aaron to save his own skin. It's hard for me to say I'm sorry, but I am, guys, I'm really sorry. Can you just ask the Lord to turn the Titanic around for me? Pharaoh's not sorry to God. He's not going to God. If he was sorry to God, he'd be going to God. He doesn't go to God. Look at the state of his repentance. Just a few verses later, it's gone. He's consumed with his need for power. I worked a few years in community mental health where individuals that come into treatment and community mental health are not there because they want to be there. They're there because they're court-mandated to be there. And part of my work involved counseling court-ordered sex offenders and court-ordered people who were charged with DUIs. And in my first year, I was completely green and trusting and innocent. And I would believe people's tearful and dramatic apologies. I can't believe. I did this. I'm so sorry that I messed up. But it wasn't long. It could be a month later, two months later, six months later, where they were back in my office because of another DUI or another sex offense. And I was so angry. And I was so miffed because I'm like, what am I not seeing? And a counselor much wiser than me reminded me, he said, Chad, it's so important to listen carefully to their apologies. Are the words centered on themselves? Or are they centered on the person that they've hurt? Even, I'm sorry you were hurt by what I did, is a terrible apology. That's the difference, friends, between worldly and godly sorrow. When worldly sorrow, what you see with Pharaoh, is at play, the apology is just to lessen the consequences of their actions, to manipulate the situation so that I can get out of this treatment office, so I can get back behind the wheel. But when godly sorrow is in action, the person is wrecked, thinking of the person that they killed with their car, thinking of the family that was left behind, thinking about the young child whose brain would be scarred and sexualized because they, they didn't ever have a choice to be abused by you. What have I done to them? What have I done to them? What have I done to you, Lord, instead of, what has this done to me? 
Lord, consume our darkness is the first step, the first step on this path toward humility because it takes seriously the conditions of our hearts and not just the consequences. What have I done to you, Lord? Like the repentant David, when he was wrecked by his adulterous sin, he prayed, against you and you alone have I sinned. Humbling ourselves before the Lord means that owning our darkness Our thinking, we are the Lord, is a regular part of our prayer life. Regular part of our prayer life. We don't negotiate with God saying, well, at least my sin isn't as bad as his sin or her sin. We don't manipulate God and say, just get me out of this predicament just this once. No, we confess each and every day and each and every week as an act of humility. We let the Lord wreck us with our wrongs. Like we sang in our song of confession, we humbly ask the Lord to send the locusts, send the locusts to consume, to burn up what we mistakenly think is ours. Whether it's power, whether it's control, whether it's possessions, whether it's people. When we're confronted with our sin, friends, we plead the cross where the Lord Jesus was consumed by the heavy, sky-darkening anger of God over our gazillion acts of power-hungry rebellion against him. He was consumed. We ask God to teach us then to hate our sin as we see what it did to Jesus. And for those of us who are victims of power-hungry sinners like Pharaoh, like the servants who are around him, the last place we need to look is to Pharaoh or to the one who hurt us to make it right. That's what they try to do. No. We must turn to the Lord who's the only one able to bring healing and green to our burned up fields. Consume our darkness, Lord. What specific darkness might be coming to mind right now? Let Christ, the great sin eater, drink the bitter cup of your darkness. Let him take the wrath of locusts which come with it. And like Moses was encouraged to do, tell your kids about it. Tell your grandkids about it. How the Lord even was able to wreck you in order to start something new in you. John Owen, who is the theologian best known for his work on the regular practice of putting to death our sin of mortification, says this, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or what will happen? It will be killing you. Daily asking the Lord, show me where the sin is. Daily turning from that sin and toward the Lord. Daily confessing and saying, I'm sorry, Lord, against you and against others have I sinned. Hating that sin, turning and hating it. Daily, daily, daily abandoning that path. Lord, first consume our darkness, then cover us with your light. When the field of our folly is leveled, when the pride of our pantries is emptied, when the trees of our treason are felled, what are we to do? Verses 21 to 29 Bring us to the place of Pharaoh's full decreation. What was before anything was made? 
darkness. The place of darkness. Moses brings an end to Pharaoh's created world as the Lord commands him to cover Egypt with a blanket of complete darkness. A place eerily similar to Genesis 1-2 where darkness was over the face of the deep. It's a darkness described as felt. What does that mean? It's a word for darkness that no longer allows you to use your eyes, but the only way you can get around is through the groping of your hands. That's what's going on with this darkness felt. Why darkness? Because Pharaoh in Egypt believed he was the son of Ra. Pharaoh believed he was the son of Ra and therefore the God of light. The God who began to set everything into motion. The God who was shining like the sun. That's who Pharaoh believed he was. And the Lord brought to him swift judgment of darkness. It's not who you are. It's never who you were. What's darkness for? Joseph Blackman did a study asking the question of, I thought it was a good question, why are nightclubs dark? He writes, the more we know that we are concealed by darkness, the less less self-conscious we are because darkness hides things. Darkness, he goes on, says, heightens anonymity. The mask of darkness allows one to act other than themselves. One of the most difficult conditions a person can be forced to bear is elongated light deprivation. Darkness is used in military captivity with torture or in penal institutions, solitary confinement, to break down an individual's sense of self. What happens is once a person's in that darkness, they, are get, they get disoriented. They lose a sense of where they are and what it is that lurks in the dark around them and where the next wall or crevice of attack may be coming from. Once they can no longer feel in control of their physical surroundings, a person then loses a sense of self and it's terrifying, it's hellish, and it's necessary. Pharaoh loses a sense of self as he's stripped of his last claim to fame and power. The darkness shines a light on who Pharaoh thinks he is. As the sun darkens for those three-day time, that three-day time, the ruler of this world, Pharaoh, the ruler of this world, the devil himself, are told, you will not have the final word because behold, where do my people dwell? My people dwell in the dawn of a light. Pharaoh tries again. It's so pathetic. He tries to keep at least a grip on the sheep and the goats. It's his last ditch effort to live in the illusion that he's in charge. And Moses says, no, Pharaoh, your hand will be forced to let go of it all. We are a new people, a new creation, no longer under the darkness of your covering, but under the light of a better king, a better ruler. Because friends, in three days' time, a light would dawn on the horizon and it would not be the result of the Son of Ra. It would be the result of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, after being consumed in darkness on the third day in his resurrection, would bring his people to dwell in marvelous light. Where the first words spoken by the Lord in the first creation, let there be light. 
would be the first words spoken from the Lord to this new creation. Let there be light. Where the children of Israel, the people of God, would no longer be a people who grope about in darkness, but now see and dwell and are covered in the light of Jesus Christ, the Goshen of Jesus Christ, in whose light there is no darkness at all, in whose presence is purity, and in whose presence the voice, that menacing voice of Pharaoh or sin or the world, it's no longer heard. The hand of Pharaoh, the hand of Satan, the hand of the ways of the world are no longer felt around our necks. We can cling to the promise that in the future dawning of Christ, like Moses said in verse 29, we're never going to see Pharaoh again. We're never going to see Satan or hear from Satan again. We're never going to struggle with sin again. Because we'll stand covered in the light and the perfection The full perfection of Jesus. Cover us in your light, Jesus. It means we're asking Christ's face to be the face that the holy God sees when we step into his presence. Cover us in your light, Jesus. It means that Jesus has taken every dark way in us and cast it like cockroaches that spread when the switch is turned on as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. Cover us in your light means that it is no longer I who lives now, but Christ that lives within me. Our self is left in the dark, and the sun is who shines in the light. So that his light is not only seen on the third day of his resurrection, it's seen on this day. As we bring his light into this Pharaoh-ruled world to be seen And to be either refused or received. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Let the sun set on the path of yourself. To behold the path of a new creation which dawns in Jesus. If you remember the commercial, the Lifesavers commercial with father and son sitting on the hill watching the sun set. Remember this one? Long time ago. Father and son are sitting in the hill and the sun goes down moves into the nighttime, and you hear the son whisper to his dad, do it again, daddy. Do it again. We begin this new year. We begin this Advent season saying to the Lord, do it again, daddy. Do it again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, do your work in us of transforming us moving us out of darkness into your marvelous light, consuming our darkness and covering us in your light. Father, this is a work that you are patient to do. There are ten plagues that show your patience, Lord. We pray that we would continue to watch and hear and see and know how you are at work in putting to death the things that we believe are the most important things. And that you are covering us once again in the light and the love and the presence of Jesus. There is no greater thing. Pray, Father, that you would move our minds, move our hearts, and move our hands to leave the path of self.
and once again get on the path of the dawning light of Jesus Christ. Do it again, Daddy. Do it again. In Jesus' powerful and perfect name we pray. Amen. Amen.